Hi, and welcome to the Overflow Podcast. I'm Chuck Ammons, lead pastor of Overflow Church in Brandon, Florida, and we are here to help you receive the Father's love and to release it to everyone you encounter everywhere. Wherever you're listening from today, your God adores you. I pray this message elevates and ignites your faith. On this podcast, you will find biblical messages to activate your faith so you experience the goodness of God and the greatness of your unique voice in His kingdom. To find out more about Overflow Church, visit us at overflowchurch.com or on Facebook at Overflow Church Brandon. We'd also love to encourage you to check out our book, Life in the Overflow, and its accompanying devotional on amazon.com. hear more of your stories, and I'm learning the new version of the church clap, so we'll see. Maybe that'll make an appearance one day. No, it won't. Um, We are in our Say Lost series, and um, I had the opportunity a few years ago when we were headed back from Nigeria, uh, Pastor Chuck and Jill and Mickey and I got to stop in London for a couple of days for rest before we made it all the way back home, and somebody that they knew had gotten us tickets to the London Philharmonic. Now, it, it was very cool. It had been like 20 years since I was in like a humanities class in college and orchestra, going to an orchestra concert was an extra credit. So I went and you kind of learned orchestra etiquette, right? But it had been 20 years, so I didn't remember. So they get um, through the, the symphony is several movements happening in the orchestra. And as you're sitting there, it's like an amazing space. I mean, beautiful. And the, the most world-renowned musicians are positioned there to play for us, right? So there we are, and we um, they get through the first movement, and I'm like, <gasps> and no one claps. No one claps. There's not a gum wrapper opening. There's not anybody like gasping like I just did. It's dead quiet. And then they go to the next movement. And, and then it ends, and I'm like, huh, here it is. Nope, not it. They go to intermission, and I'm thinking, Before the curtain closes, they want you just to, like, echo your sound back to them of applause. No. I talked to this guy in the middle at intermission who was from London, and he was, like, a a, um, one that had the, the season tickets to the Philharmonic. So he was a a orchestra goer. He knew all of the things. So I asked him a few questions. He said, you save your applause till the end. I was like, okay, I'll do it. I'll sit on my hands, whatever I got to do. I'm a little bit too expressive for this condition, I think. But they go through all the movements until the very end when the conductor who's been facing the orchestra the whole time turns around and suddenly it's time. And man, like minutes of applause happen so much that your hands are aching and hurting because you are just clapping and resounding joy back to them and it is overwhelming. It was so long, it was so long of applause that I actually got to take my phone out of my purse, out of the place on the floor, stand up and snap another picture of everyone cheering and applause all standing. There are these moments in between the movements that cause such silence that by the end of it, you can't help but be overjoyed and rejoicing and amazed. And so often we fill those moments of silence 
that are connecting movements together with noise. We connect them with something, which was what my problem was, right? I had to sit on my hands because I'm so used to filling all this space of silence with some kind of noise. So we're in this Selah series. Everything in between the movements of the Psalms, all the breaks where that says Selah is a pause. And this term is so, like, elusive. It's, it just means so many things, and scholars can't quite pin down exactly what it means. But all the research that I've done, I've been looking at it for a few months and meditating on this word, and I liken it to a pregnant pause. Have you ever heard of this term? It's like where there's something coming on the other side of the pause, of the moment. There's a poignant pause, and that's done for effectiveness. But the pregnant pause means I'm stopping right here, and there's also something else that's ahead that I'm looking to as I wait. And that's the movements in the symphony, from one to another. Pregnant pause. We think it's over, but it's not the end. There's something on the other side that's coming. So much of the Psalms is like this prayer life opened up for pages for us to read and understand. And Selah allows us to read the Psalms and respond with a yes, I have felt that. Yes, I have thought that. It's both heart and head aligning to the Holy Spirit so that we can take stock and reflect about what's been going on in our own thoughts and in our own feelings, in our own heart. So it's like the psalmist is saying, this is true, so what else is true? What comes after this truth? It suspends and connects one moment to the next. It's this break from human transgression to divine establishment. It means there's a place that I'm having a hard time, and God, I need to fix my eyes right here, slow down my pace, and understand what you're saying about this situation. The fullness of what my notes have kind of gathered are a series of words, and it's this, pause, reflect, take stock, consider, prompt, beckoning, transition, an opportunity to respond, a shift, a praise. It also means strike the instruments. It's like that moment between where you have that like symbol, strike the instruments. It's expectancy and hope. It's now and not yet. It's both found in music and in liturgy, which means that there's a, a, a worship to it. There's a rhythm to it. It's part of our process for worship. It allows us to testify to the truth in our heart, in our head, in our spirit, and to keep on reading. It says, don't clap yet. Don't clap yet. There's more. It suspends and then connects one moment to the next. And it implores us to wait for God's response, just not move on from it. we got to wait and hear what he's saying. Don't fill it with noise. So it is used 71 times in the Psalms and three in, the, in Habakkuk. So we recognize it mostly in the Psalms. 
And through scripture, the Lord offers these Selah moments to align us according to who he is. For He's imploring us to remember who he is. He's saying, I'm not made in your image. You are made in mine. So get your heart right. So be ready because you're going to see some things that you need to see to align yourself to who I am. Stop trying to put me in your box. You were made in my image, he says. Take a minute and get proper perspective on this. Take a minute and get perspective, is what Selah is saying. So July has been our Selah month. It's kind of a reset for our corporate body and for us individually. It fits right in the academic calendar as that moment as we can kind of take stock of what, what did this year bring and what did last year bring if, if you follow an academic calendar. Pastor Chuck, our lead pastor, is on sabbatical in the month of July. It really gives us all kind of a time to, to slow down, right? And to really reset, that's what he's doing. And as leadership goes, so we go. So it's for all of us inviting into the rhythm of the Holy Spirit to ensure proper alignment with where he's going, to take stock and wherever needed to get back in step with his cadence. And the Selah moment is called a moment because we don't know how long it's supposed to last. There's a rhythm to Selah. There's a rhythm to these Psalms. And so the best way to measure it is not in seconds or minutes or something like time that's linear, but in our heartbeat. When you're on a treadmill or you're on a machine and your feet are going and your, and your feet are at a pace that your heart is not at yet or your heart's faster than your feet, you know I got to slow this pace down to bring my heart back into the right rhythm or I'm going to get exhausted. I'm going to push myself too far and too fast for where I need to be in this moment. And it's going to actually end up causing me more harm than it is good, even though I'm on a treadmill and I'm working out. It's all good, right? No, it's actually bad (laughs) if you go too far out of line with with where your heart rhythm is. So we measure this time, this Selah, in heartbeats. The five... Words encompass the fullness of the movement of the Selah moment. Praise, pause, pivot, prompt, position. Now, it so happens to work out that they're all peace, you know, and uh, so hallelujah. But (laughs) we have already gone two, two weeks into this, and maybe you didn't even notice, but there was a reset that happened in July as we got up here together and we praised the Lord right before 4th of July together, and we had a family service. Last week, we paused from our normal rhythms of worship and what that looks like with with a teaching and all of that kind of stuff, and we had a moment. I don't know if you recognized it, because this was not planned, but last week, we ended with revivals in the air. Yeah, yeah, that's the Holy Spirit, right? He does stuff like this. So it was this resounding thing. So it doesn't mean that we have to be somber. It means that we have to pause and say, what is the Spirit of the Lord saying? There was a pause moment, and flags are in the air, and the Lord said, that's it. Revival's in the air. Now meditate on that this week, and and I'm going to tell you what I'm going to prompt you to do with that revival with the revival that's in the air, the renewal that's coming to your heart. 
So we're going to stay in a place today in Psalm 32. There's three Selah moments in this scripture. So Psalm 32 is connected to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is the passage that David writes that says, um, after he had had caught in adultery with Bathsheba and killed Uriah, her husband, sent him out into the field. He lied, he schemed, he cheated. I mean, this is not a good day for David. And Nathan the prophet comes in and says, God has forgiven you. And so David writes Psalm 51 after this moment. And so we are familiar with this passage of scripture when David writes, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit with me, within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So he's saying, those who have been like me, I'm going to teach them about who you are. Those who have committed sins like I have, murder, all the Ten Commandments he broke, right? And the Lord was faithful and just to forgive David and love him and return him to a place of honor. He said, I'm going to teach them that this is the kind of God you are. And so Psalm 32 is that writing. It's that teaching. It's that place where he's saying to us, hey, pay attention. I, I'm coming from a place where I know who God is, the true God, the living God, the forgiving God, the honoring God, the loving God. I know him, and let me teach you about who he is. You've heard my, my lament, my cry out to him, my open book prayer, and now this is the instruction. So it starts out and it says, Psalm 32, a maskeel. A maskeel is that kind of contemplative instruction. It's when you read it and you go, there's something here that I have to pay attention to and really let it deposit in my heart. And there's two other places in the Bible that a maskeel is written. It's in Psalm 78 and Psalm 42. It's to think or reflect, to give instruction, and it's a prompt for us. Be prompted is to cause or bring about, a, to bring about, to assist or encourage, done without delay, immediate, being ready and quick to act as occasion demands. So it's saying, don't just think on these things. Be ready to act in accordance with these things. I loved that Nikki opened our activation today with that word from Philippians that says, think on these things. And the prompting is, think on them so that they're a part of your heart so that when the time comes, you walk in them. This is how we are to walk. So we're going to start. There's six prompts that we're going to go through. Psalm 32, 1 through 2. Prompt one, and it's these things that God wants to get to us. He wants to get us some things, okay? So the first one is get honest. Psalm 32, 1 through 2, get honest. It says here, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I chose specifically this ESV version because every other version is going to be like sin, sin, sin. But there are three different types of sin that David is talking about. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. And there's a difference in all three of them, but we lump all sin together and I think it waters down 
for us what sin actually is and how it manipulates and moves into our heart. And so then we start to contain our sin and, and justify it because we really don't understand what it is. Maybe that's just me. <clears throat> but David is imploring us not to deceive ourselves about how our sin affects our relationship with God. So the three sins, transgression, is crossing a line. It's defying authority. It's pride and it's arrogance. It's rebellion. Saying, here's the line, don't cross it. And transgression would say, here I go. I knew, I heard you. I heard what you said, but I'm going to do my own thing anyway. It's a prideful response. That's transgression. Sin means it doesn't meet God's standard. It missed the mark. And this is rooted in fear. So often God says, I have a call on your life. I have a purpose for you. And out of your own insecurity, out of your own fear of man, okay, that's a real thing. You fear more pe people's opinions of you more than you fear God. We're going to talk about that in a minute. You decline his offer to the fullness of his calling. This is sin. You haven't come to the standard that God has set for your life. It is sinful when we don't meet God's standard and call for our life. And I love you, and I have walked in that many times. And iniquity is a distortion or a crookedness. It's manipulation and passive-aggressive. It says, um, this is true, but probably also this. And it sort of adds in, okay? It's not a straight path. It's not a narrow path that God talks about. Are you with me? Yes. Okay. And so we are, we, we are and have been before Christ, before his righteousness covers us, we have been guilty of these sins, right? And so in our, in our desire to, um, not, to be right with God, we cover it up. And this is what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They covered up their sin. So when God comes and asks them, where are you? They said, oh, we're hiding because we just realized we were naked. And God's response, right, they're trying to cover themselves, their own sin, their own knowledge, their own understanding, their own shame. They're trying to cover it up and hide from God. And God knows where they are. And so as he's, his desire is not to expose us and our sin, he's He's not that kind of God. He's such a gentleman. The first thing that he does for Adam and Eve is he covers them with fig leaves. He makes, or they cover themselves with fig leaves. He makes them clothes. He makes them clothes out of animal skins. This is who our God is. He's always made a plan to cover us. But we are so nervous about that sin being exposed, about who we are, that we don't ever take it to the Lord. We're not honest with him. And that's what David is saying. You are blessed when you show this stuff to the Lord and there's no deceit in your heart. You have to be honest here first. And if we're not willing to be honest here, we can't go very far with the Lord because it blocks our intimacy with him. It blocked intimacy with Adam and Eve, and God was grieved over that. The blessing of God's forgiveness means that our sin is covered under his robes of righteousness, and that train never ends. The robe 
of his train of righteousness, it never ends. So we're no longer exposed, we're covered. The blessing, this word blessed, is plural. It means stacks on stacks on stacks of blessing, okay? It is a Costco supply. It is a warehouse of more than you could ever imagine or need, and there's no end to it. There was a Costco in Iceland. That's what that means. Like when we went to Iceland, I was like, there's a Costco here. Wow, they're everywhere. That's God's blessing for you. Everywhere in more, you'll never run out. Not ever. I never reached the end of that rice bag, it seems, until we do. And then I'm like, hey, we got to go get more. And it's all there. They still have it. I don't know how it works at Costco, but they do. It is not in short supply. So David starts here and says, is there transgression? Is there sin? Is there iniquity? God will forgive those things. Are you being honest about it? In that secret place with the Lord, are you real with him about where you sit with him in terms of transgression, iniquity, and sin? So this is God's amendment for his commandment. His commandment is not to sin. If you sin, then the amending solution is your confession to him, to get honest with him about those things. But the omission of your sin will keep you from the remission of your sin. I'm going to say it again. The omission, the things that you omit and you don't want to talk about and you don't want to tell him and you don't want to get honest about, the omission of your sin will keep you, will delay the remission of your sin. Because he wants to pour that out for you. And you have stopped it. We have stopped it. Do you get that? I have stopped it plenty of times in my life. It comes so quick when I'm honest with him, though. So when we confess our sin to him, we are forgiven, covered, record, erased. Be honest with God so that you can receive the blessing of the forgiveness and salvation. The second prompt is to get real. This is different than getting honest. This is to get real. It says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. Selah. We know the heat of summer around here, don't we? The other day I saw a woman, young girl, walking around the pool with a sweater on under her bathing suit. I'm not judging her, but this looks a lot to me like the image of how we walk around with our sin. Summertime, walking around with a sweater on over our bathing suit, thinking we're free. We are not free. That is hot. She got in the pool with that sweater on. She was swimming around in the pool with a sweater on. Can you imagine that that is what we do? that we swim around in the pool of God's grace and goodness, still wearing heaviness, cloaked in the shame of our sin, instead of taking that off and not letting it drag us down. She wasn't free to play in the same way as the other kids at the pool. She had a sweater on. I don't understand why, (laughs) but it works for my message, so thank you. So how has your sin affected your reality? Have you ever seen somebody who's lived a hard life, never come into um, agreement with who Jesus is, 
and you're sitting with them. I've seen it so many times, and the hardness of life, the sin, the unforgiveness, the unbelief, all of those things are heavy and weighted on them, and suddenly they start to walk in the truth of who Jesus is, and they radiate, they change. They're no longer downcast on their face because they're no longer downcast in their soul. There's something that happens that affects the outside of us that brings a usefulness from the glory of God. How has sin in your life affected your reality? What are you not talking about? What feels like summer or the dead of winter in your life? It's time to get real and think about the effects of that and what it's causing, what it's costing. Sin makes life miserable because it separates us from God. Our heart cries out for us to return to our maker, and when we don't, we have to medicate or be distracted to be able to sustain living away from him. Our spirits are crying out, Abba, Father, and when we don't come into agreement and align ourselves with Abba, Father, we won't take those steps, we won't get real and get honest, then we actually have to do other things to help us stay distracted enough to silence our spirits. Which is why all the pleasures in life have been invented. All the addictions of life have come. Because we need a way to silence this. Oh, I got some snaps. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Um, Why do we have such a hard time with this? We love God, don't we? Like, don't you love Jesus? We love him so much. And so there's no issue there, I believe. There's no issue with how we love Jesus. But I've been paying attention to this guy named John Bevere. He writes this book called The Awe of God. He tells a story about how he was with, early on in his career, learning how to hear the voice of God and how to walk with Jesus. So it was uh, about 30 years ago. He was sitting in the prison with Jim Baker across from him. Now, if you remember Jim Baker, he was charged and convicted of all kinds of things, um, fraud and, uh, I don't know, a bunch of other things. There was a sex scandal involved, lots of bad things, right? So he's sitting in jail for five years, and John Bevere has this notion about who Jim Baker is based on his charges and his conviction, but he agrees to meet with him. And Jim Baker was a very famous televangelist and got himself into all these issues. And so he's sitting across from him, and John Bevere with his judgment upon him, and this is his story, I'm not, I'm not, say, I'm not casting judgment here, but with his judgment already against Jim Baker, starts to ask him questions. And he asks him, so when did you stop loving Jesus? And Jim Baker said, oh, I never stopped loving Jesus. Through all of this sin that he's committing, I never stopped loving Jesus. And John Bevere was like, what? And he said, no, no. He said, well, then how do you have longevity? How did, you, how did this happen? He said, I stopped fearing God. And we 
have a, a real negative notion about what it means to fear God because we see all fear as bad, but there are constructive and destructive fears. So there's a constructive fear that as you're growing up, you recognize if I get too close to this edge, and sometimes you guys, when the tables aren't here, are probably like, oh, I'm nervous for her. She's getting real close to that edge, right? Or if you're at the Grand Canyon, you see somebody's pictures off the ledge, you're like, oh, I don't know about that. There's a healthy fear that you have about the ledge, right? That keeps wisdom in your mind from going across the ledge. There are constructive fears that build wisdom. Over 200 times in the Bible, it talks about the fear of the Lord, that it's God's treasure, that the fear of the Lord keeps us from harm, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is important. It means that there's an awe and a reverence. It don't lump it in, right, with all the other bad, destructive fears. Understand its purpose. It means that I am going to align myself rightly with God no matter the cost. I'm going to pursue fear of him over fear of man. It means that I stand here not because somebody else told me to, but because God called that on my life and other people came into agreement with it. There are plenty of times in my life that I get swallowed by what I think you'll think what I think you will think. But if I let that allow me to stay away from who my God has called me to be, I would be in sin. The fear of the Lord is greater than the fear of man. My job is to sit before him and say, what did you think of my words? Did they honor you? Did they please you? Is it what you called me to do today, God? There is a fear of the Lord that is helpful. And to give us some context, because I don't want us to get too lost in this, but it's worth pursuing. We can't be vulnerable or honest or real. It, it limits our capacity for intimacy. But the person who fears God has nothing to hide because they see themselves accurately through his eyes. They've allowed themselves to come into agreement with him because they've been positioned rightly. The, without the fear of God, we, say, we can say, I have the spirit of God in me, so I must be God also. I love Jesus so much, and he loves me so much. We lose our reasoning when we don't fear God properly and allow him to align us rightly according to his word. We start to love ourselves more. When we fear God, we know where he sits and where we sit. And we can love him rightly for who he is. And then every time he invites us to his table, which he does, we are honored by it. We are humbled by it because he's positioned in a certain way. He's positioned himself. And then he's allowed us to be positioned with him. That's a right honor and fear of God. And when these 200 times come up, let me tell you that it's not just the Old Testament thought or theology. It's a New Testament. It transitions all the way through the Bible. Are you guys with me still? Okay. So here's what John Bevere, this is how in his 30 years of pursuing this, this is what he says about it. 
He says to fear God is to esteem, respect, honor, venerate, revere, to be in awe of and adore him above anything or anyone else. So fearing God allows us to say correctly that the spirit of God is in me, but I am not the spirit of God. It aligns us rightly. And he is in me because I have submitted my will to his. Selah is positioned right here. And it's intentional. So we don't move past these two pain points of getting honest and getting real. About the sin in our lives and about how it has affected us. So this is the first movement. And the other ones will go quicker. So if you're timing it, don't worry. This is the first movement, but applauding here would be too soon. We need to sit in this for a minute and ask, how is sin affecting our lives? So I'm going to give us a few heartbeats to take stock, to have a Selah moment together here, to feel the transition like we did in the orchestra from movement to movement, to pause and I want you to ask the Lord to get honest and get real. How is sin affecting my life? Psalm 32, 5 goes on to say, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. The third prompt for us is to get found. If we stayed right there in that moment, it would crush us. We want to sit too long in our sin sometimes, but it's acknowledging the sin and confessing it to get it out of your head, out of your heart, off of your hands, away from your eyes, out of your ears. Sin is a song stuck inside your head, and it won't come out of it until you play a new song. You have got to say the words of confession of where you have been, what you have been struggling with, where you need God to get real and get honest so that you can get found. God positioned himself with Adam and Eve as soon as they said, we're hiding. He knew the whole time, but it's when they said, we're hiding, that he came and showed up. The honesty of confession. So take that in. And drink it in for a moment. What will you do with the sin that is affecting your life? We have another Selah moment here that David's positioned us for. He said, this is what I decided to do. I was going to acknowledge this sin in my life. Will you confess it? So let's take a moment here. What will you do? What will we do to get found?
The fourth prompt is get hidden. Psalm 32, 6 through 7 says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly, let everyone who is godly. That means if we are walking in uprightness or we aren't, this is who we, how we begin to walk in godliness. This is how we do it. This is how we move. Those who are godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. This picture of getting hidden means that I am found someplace because of who God is. I'm hidden in his arms. The things of this world that came to tempt me and destroy me and kill me and break me can no longer get me because I have been found and now I'm hidden. When I was little, we had this bench seat in our house and we would have Bible studies and people would come over and I was little and my um, there was a table that we sat at, our kitchen table, and it had this bench seat. And when it was late at night or my I did, couldn't sleep or... Um, it was getting late and it was, it was time for me to go to sleep, I would kind of tuck into my mom's lap. And it was the most safe place as she was talking through the Bible and discussing the things of the Lord with people. I was hidden under the table. You couldn't even see me. There I was, right in her lap, safe as could be. And she was telling of the goodness of God, sharing above me, covering me with his words, building the kingdom as I slept and rested. This to me is a picture of what it means to get hidden in the Lord. Nothing in that place in my mind was conceivable that could harm me at all. My parents were the safest place for me. And so staying hidden there, as David points out, means the rushing waters can't get you, that he's a hiding place for you. And what I love about the very end of this verse, you surround me with shouts of deliverance, Selah. This is the problem of constructing our own God in our own image. We have to first hear what heaven is saying and then echo. So if we don't stay silent and hear what he's saying about us, we will continue the narrative in our own minds about who we are. But he's shouting, he's shouting deliverance over us, shouting from heaven that we are free, that we are his, that we are known, that we are seen, that we are safe, shouting songs of deliverance, that we are healed, that we are restored that we are mighty, that we can do it. He's pronouncing, declaring, decreeing with his authority freedom upon us. And he shouts it so that it cuts through the lies and the torment of our minds. I'm going to be louder than the voices in your head. I'm going to be louder than the enemy's torment. I'm going to be louder than those things. I'm not going to say I'm quietly over you. I am going to shout them from heaven. And when I shout, the angels shout with me. And when I shout, Holy Spirit shouts with me. The councils shout with me the declaration over who you are in my kingdom. And it will cut through the noise if we would sit in Selah, 
and listen to what he says. That there is not condemnation for you, beloved. There is no condemnation for you. There is salvation and invitation. So what good news is he shouting? This is where we sit in Selah again. You've talked about what is, how is sin affecting my life? What am I going to do with it? And now, Father, tell me, what is heaven shouting? What is the good news trying to get to my ears from you, from heaven? Selah in this moment. Prompt five is to get schooled. We need to get schooled about what God is saying. Psalm 32, eight through nine, I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it won't stay near you. God is saying to David and to us, I don't want to have to pull you along. Like, don't be that guy or girl where I'm like, come on, we're going here. He's saying, hear the sounds of my deliverance and come with me. I've got things I need to tell you so that you're prepared for the places that you're going to go and what you're going to encounter. I need to instruct you. You need to get schooled on who, God, who I am and what I have for you, my goodness in store for you. You got to get schooled. And the final prompt is, get paid. <laughs> get paid. Psalm 32, 10, 11 says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. But that's not us anymore, and that's what David is saying. That's not your inheritance. Sorrow belongs to wickedness. But you and I, we have set our sin before the Lord. He's faithful and just to forgive us. And now he's pronounced shouts of deliverance upon us. So we don't identify, please hear me, do not identify with these words, many are the sorrows of the wicked, because that is not you. You are godly and made holy in righteousness when you come into the belief of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. That's us. Yes. This is where the applause starts to come. You know it's coming to the end. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. He's saying steadfast love belongs to you. Gladness belongs to you. Joy belongs to you. Uprightness of heart belongs to you. Rejoicing belongs to you. This is what you get paid in. It surrounds you. It's like taking Costco with you everywhere you go, guys. <laughs> with like vats and storehouses of love and goodness and provision. More than you could ever need or ask. It's just right there. You take it off, more love shows up. You receive joy, more joy shows up. Yeah. 
It keeps showing up. It never ends. So we're going to take a few minutes to put all this together and give you space for Selah. I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit is prompting. He's the one who establishes plans. He convicts of sin. He instructs us. He moves us with the kindness and faithfulness of God. So we're just going to let him do it. But I want to ask first, so if you could close your eyes with me for just a second. Is there anyone in this room that would say, confession of sin, I've never done that before. I've never given my sin or the sinfulness of my heart over to the Lord. I've never declared faith in him that he is faithful and righteous to forgive me of my sin because of his full work on the cross. If you have never said that before, and this would be your first time, I just want you to raise your hand. You would say, I've never before heard a message that would tell me that I've been separated from God because of my sin. And he is faithful because of his work to bring me back to rightness. You can just raise your hand if that's you. going to invite you to stand with me. And I'll invite the ministers on the side to come now. So we're just going to have a Selah moment. I didn't quite give you enough time if you need it. But there's a confession of sin that is with God. But we're a body of believers, a community and oftentimes we need somebody else to walk through with us and pull out the lies and identify them with us because we've heard them for so long we believe they're true. We've started to believe our own lies. And so if, if that's a moment that you need a witness to say, man, this has been sin in my life. I've confessed it to God. I'm confessing it now. And I just want you to come as a witness of this thing that the Lord wants to do in my life. And the ministers on the side are available for that confession. And then there's this table here of repentance and renewal and where God has invited us in his holiness to just come and participate with him, to be surrounded by his songs of deliverance, his rejoicing, his love, his joy. So if you just close your eyes with me and take a minute. How is sin affecting my life? Some place where I've let pride seep in and I've stepped over past the mark of God's goodness. Where has sin, that transgression, that iniquity, that place that I've, the Lord has said this is a straight path and I've made it crooked. I've allowed it to be crooked this place where I've let fear and insecurity keep me from God's standard for my life, for his desire for me, his goodness, his mercy, his availability. I've, I've decided that this is how far I'm going to go. 
How is it affecting your life? What will you do about it? What will you do about it? And this table is available for you to participate with Jesus in his renewal with the elements, the bread and the juice that symbolize his body broken for you and for me, for our sin, and his blood that refreshes and washes all of that away, to participate with him in this moment, to be renewed towards revival. We have to be renewed here before revival happens and sweeps through. And I'll tell you, the last 250 years, every single revival has come because of a confession of sin and a repentance to God. That is how it comes, is because we've humbled ourselves and participated in the finished work of the cross. If we want revival, we have to stay repentant before the Lord and allow his image to stand above ours. And as you sit, let the Lord shout his goodness over you. Some of us, we just need to sit and let the Lord shout his goodness over us. Just to hear what he's saying, to cut through the noise. So Holy Spirit, I invite you right now to be who you are. To cut through every lie, to let shame fall. If you've been carrying shame or unforgiveness, those are sins. That's not what God has for you. He has more than that. He has more than that for you. He has freedom for you. Don't let the sin in your life, the places that are broken, and sin is this like word that we're careful about in the church sometimes, and we need not be. Because Peter sat before Jesus and he said, I don't want you to wash my feet, right? And that was his pride speaking. And Jesus says, I have to wash your feet, Peter. And he said, then wash my whole body. He's like, you don't need that, bud. You just need me to wash your feet. There's some sin that has come on your feet that I just need to clean away. It's not difficult if you would submit yourself to me and my goodness. I am begging us to come and sit and dine and recline and feast on the Jesus who believes in us who says we're godly and we have an upright heart. Come from that place of love and receive from him.